Welcome to the Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Sponsored by the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy, I'm Georgine Rice. This week, Senator James Langford of Oklahoma recognizes participants in the 50th annual March for Life. They've gathered them to the mall and they just said, we believe every child is valuable. And we'll look at the motives of those who marched. Really, the tone was very much, we're celebrating that Roe v. Wade is overturned, but our work isn't done. The challenge the pro-life cause faced in the recent election. Democrats spent $360 million on abortion-related ads in the fall, and Republicans spent $37 million. And Ryan Anderson on the role of marriage in the abortion equation. If you were a child conceived outside of marriage, you have a 40% chance of dying by abortion. We've got all this and more. I'm Georgine Rice, and I'm glad to be with you once again. I'm coming to you from Portland and my home station of KPDQ. You can hear my own program live each weekday afternoon on 93.9 FM here in Portland and online via our website at kpdq.com and also through the TuneIn radio app. Thanks for joining us. Last Friday, tens of thousands gathered in Washington, D.C. for the 50th annual March for Life. It was the first national March for Life since Roe versus Wade was overturned. Sadly, elite media outlets rarely cover the event. Chances are you heard very little about it. Typically, they go very soft in covering the largest annual human rights demonstration on the planet. Within the chambers of the U.S. Senate, James Langford of Oklahoma gave thanks to those who marched. For 50 years, there have been a group of folks. This year, there were tens of thousands that gathered out on the mall just to be able to celebrate every single child. They've done it for now five decades since the Roe v. Wade decision came down. They've gathered on the mall and they just said, we believe every child is valuable. Every child. There aren't some children that are disposable and some children that are valuable. We think every child's valuable. He went on to challenge his colleagues on the most fundamental of issues. Everyone's having to pause and ask a simple question. What do I believe about life? Not what's convenient. What do I believe about life? When does life begin? This issue, the sanctity of an innate value of human life in the womb, is near and dear to my heart. I've been a part of the pro-life cause for nearly 40 years. In fact, I began my radio career being interviewed by my home station representing Oregon Right to Life some 30-plus years ago. Today, I continue to turn to Oregon Right to Life and its executive director, Lois Anderson, to gauge the movement's effectiveness and challenges. Lois was a recent guest on my program. Oregon was among the first states in the nation before Roe versus Wade that had legalized abortion. So this is a major challenge for us here. And while I often think I wish I was in a pro-life state, I believe God has placed us here at this time, at this juncture, in order to do his work as difficult as it may be. And I know that you, Oregon Right to Life, and so many others have rolled your sleeves up and are continuing to do the work. Well, that's very true. We are in a specific place geographically at a specific time at God's design. And so I think for us to be living in Oregon, knowing that we have a specific purpose here and we need to uh, be sure we know what that is and to be acting on it. Yeah, absolutely. There was a, a march, a celebration 
uh, on Sunday from the pro-life movement. We heard a lot in the news about the pro-abortion movement. Tell us a little bit about uh, the acknowledgement of the sanctity of human life that took place this weekend. Uh, I was honored to be in Washington, D.C. at the National March for Life. And I have to say there is nothing like standing there and looking at the crowd and not being able to see the end of it. Mm. Um, To just know that how many thousands and thousands of people from across the country travel to be a part of what is the longest lasting, largest human rights demonstration in the world. And it is for the unborn. And so it was very encouraging. And there, of course, were speakers. And really, the tone was very much, um, we're celebrating that Roe v. Wade is overturned, but our work isn't done. I noted that the Family Research Council, along with 13 other pro-life organizations, sent letters addressed to the leadership of CVS Health and Walgreens um, pharmacies uh, calling on them to stop acting as de facto abortion centers by dispensing abortion-inducing drugs. Can you talk a little bit about the chemical abortion and the ease with which uh, these drugs are now available under the current administration post-Roe? Oh, it, it is a tragedy that the FDA has really advocated their responsibility by loosening these regulations to the point where women will not be receiving even the most limited examination and care to, um, and then given these pills, uh, abortion pills are dangerous. There have been at least 28 women who have died after they have taken these pills. If you have any opportunity to listen or to read women's testimonies, about going through chemical abortions. Um, they want them to sound like this is just simple, just take a pill and, and your problem is over. And that, that, is, that is not the case. It is dangerous for women. It's deadly for babies. And now we have this situation where your corner pharmacy is going to basically be an abortion facility. So I think that there's a couple of things that we need to do. Um, If we're a customer of a pharmacy, my understanding is that each individual pharmacy that has to complete the paperwork to be certified to dispense the pills. So it is effective to let your local pharmacy know that you disagree with this and that you don't want them to do it. Um, I think it's really important for us to be completely aware of the abortion pill reversal treatment. There is a website and a 1-800 number. Many pregnancy centers offer this treatment. So women that take the, it's a two-pill protocol. If you take the first pill within 72 hours, there is a way to work to reverse the effects of it. And more than 4,000 babies have reported to be saved through this treatment across the country. And I think third, we really need to be sure we're communicating with our family and our friends and at our church so that families understand the dangers of what is going on, that we, un- that we understand that you can get these pills. You know, in Oregon, again, you know, we were sort of on the, on the front end where we've been a part of pilot projects. And so getting these pills by mail or going and picking up was possible beforehand. Now they can be picked up at a pharmacy. So being educated and then educating those around us is really important. And then 
you know, our national organizations, National Right to Life, Susan B. Anthony List, will be continuing to give us instructions and advice on further actions that we can take, and we will be letting people know about those. The overturn of Roe versus Wade has been a significant focal point of the pro-life cause for half a century. But the reversal of this unconstitutional precedent was, you could argue, just a prerequisite for the substantive progress in the democratic process. Sarah Zalstrom is a senior editor with the Gospel Coalition. She talked about the pro-life message and the most recent election with John Hall and Kathy Emmons on Word 101.5 FM in Pittsburgh. So it's been six months since the Dobbs decision, and I don't know how you felt. We're in Pennsylvania, and so we had a very high-profile Senate race and a gubernatorial race as well. And the pro-abortion messaging, extremely strong. The anti-abortion messaging could not have been weaker. So I'm not sure if it was like that across the country. From what I've read, I think that that's probably the case. So does that mean something for how things are for the pro-life movement at this point? Well, I thought it did, because you are right. Democrats spent $360 million on abortion-related ads in the fall, and Republicans spent $37 million. And I think the, the thing was they just didn't really know what to say. Like, you could position yourself against Roe, and then all of a sudden, Roe's not there. It's like you were pushing a door, and somebody opened it, and you stumbled Right, exactly. Bit, right? But, yeah. you know, that's so. to me, that's so sad, because it just shows that we don't really know what we believe. You know, like if, if you're the, if you're caught that off guard, it just seems like maybe you weren't really educated from the start on it. I will agree. It was disappointing. But I would also say that that's not how the movement as a whole, when I'm taking the temperature of the movement as a whole, that on, on the whole, they're feeling really encouraged, okay. um, much more so than the polls would tell you. Right. Okay, so people would say, though, Sarah, that you, know, you you may have won the war, but the cultural war, you've lost that. That may be true, yeah? Yeah, I mean, I would agree. I think there's been pushback. I mean, clearly there's pushback in the Biden administration. Um, I think there's pushback uh, among Gen Z, like the younger voters. What's interesting about Gen Z is that they're not saying, oh, this is a blob of tissue. The latest argument that I read was, well, why shouldn't the pregnant woman define whether that's a life or not? It's her choice whether she's carrying a life or whether she's not and whether she should abort that or not, which is super interesting. But I think in general, Dobbs was a huge win. I think in general, thousands of lives will be saved because you can, you know, advertise for people to, I'm in Illinois and we're saying, hey, come on over here and have abortions. That's what our state is saying. Um, but I think distance is a, a true deterrent. And I think there's maybe seven to 800 abortion clinics in the United States and there's close to 3,000 pregnancy centers. So there's just numbers like that underneath the surface that give you a lot of hope. Yeah. Sarah, as you talk to people around the country about this, people who have been working in the pro-life movement for a while, talk about why they're feeling encouraged and what it is that they're seeing that's causing them to really keep on going. Great question. I would say, first of all, one of the big arguments of the pro-choice side is that, hey, this woman is now going to have to live in poverty and be on food stamps to raise her child. But that's not what the evidence shows. The, the statistics for abortion do not show that they provide any kind of assist to a woman. She doesn't get better education. She doesn't make more money. The evidence there is quite weak. I would say that on the side of um, positive positivity here, we've got six months after Dobbs, 
um, state and federal legislation. There wasn't um, a, a red wave in November, but neither was there a blue wave. And so we've got a balanced Congress, which means maybe nothing will go forward. But it also means that we can keep our voice in the abortion debate and be able to speak about things on a federal level. Um, some things that have already passed a resolution opposing the attacks on pregnancy centers that have happened over the last couple of months um, and a resolution. I think the one about the Born Alive Act, like if, if you went, if your child, um, you attempted an abortion and the child was born alive, um, you have to protect that life. Those aren't things that are going to become law. We know they're not going to make it past, you know, the president. And yet they're still helping to shape the conversation. Um, I would say also the abortion clinic protest. Um, I talked to 40 Days for Life, who is a big mover in this area, and they are seeing record numbers of people come out. Um, they have had they've seen 12 clinic closures in the last six months. They usually see around eight a year. Um, and so those numbers are picking up. And so the, the num there's just an energy in the pro-life movement that feels like, hey, um, this thing's rolling. Let's keep it going. Coming up, the real science deniers. There are people who deny the basic scientific reality that the entity in the womb is an unborn human being. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Celebrating our 25th anniversary, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy invites you to learn from one of our beloved teachers, Dr. Gordon Lloyd, in a four-part webinar series titled The Roots of Political Economy, Capitalism versus Socialism. This free video series teaches foundational principles of free markets, as well as the philosophers behind socialism. Find out more at go.pepperdine.edu slash capitalism. That's go.pepperdine.edu slash capitalism. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. Safe, legal, and rare. Well, that was the oft-repeated line of the pro-abortion movement in the Clinton era. Today, defenders of abortion are willing to defend and advocate violence in the womb right up to the point of birth. In fact, they even defend it, not as something regrettable or unfortunate, but as a common good. Along the way, the defenders of abortion have become the real science deniers, I think you'll enjoy my conversation with Ryan Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis. They're the authors of Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. They were both guests on my program. Your first chapter is titled Abortion Harms the Unborn Child. You might assume that we could at all at least agree on that point. But in 21st century America, in post-Roe America, we don't even agree largely on that point. So let's begin there. Sure thing. I mean, so unfortunately, in 21st century America, there are people who deny the basic scientific reality that the entity in the womb is an unborn human being. There are also still in 21st century America, equality deniers, people who deny that all human beings are created equal and endowed by their creator with their right to life. So the more sophisticated pro-choice activists will concede the biological point, right? They don't want to be science deniers. So they'll say, yes, it is an unborn human being. But then they will deny the equality point. And they say, well, but it's not equal to us. It's not yet a moral person. This is the Peter Singer style um, arguments that you get from, you know, one of the professors at my alma mater at Princeton. They can't affirm the declaration. They don't really believe that all human beings are created equal and endowed by their creator with an inalienable right to life. And that's where we are in 21st century America, right? People either denying the science about the unborn child or the morality, the equality. And what Alexandra and I do in that very first chapter of the book is we just marshal the evidence. We go through the science that shows that it's a human being. We go through the philosophy that demonstrates that it should be treated equal because 
that unborn human being is our equal. And then we look at the politics of the law, why it's not an overreach of the government to protect the natural right to life of every human being born and unborn. Would you like to comment on that as well, Alexandra? Uh, the last point that we, we do cover in that chapter that I think is important to note is kind of the, the way in which abortion supporters claim that even if an unborn child is a human being and a, a human person, somehow a mother's right to her own body or a woman's right to her own body trumps the child's right to life. And this is just the wrong framework, right? We should be thinking about the duties that parents have and a mother has, and a father has to care for their children. Not This is not a competition of rights. And, and the fact that a child is, has come into being inside his or her mother is not licensed to kill that child. It's a, a requirement to care for him. Interestingly, we have come to accept the notion, and I'm speaking broadly of the culture, that women need abortion to be equal and empowered. And you argue in the book that neither thing has been accomplished. Rather, there has been harm that you outline in detail uh, as a consequent. Talk a bit about that claim that uh, in order for women to be equal to men in our culture, she has to have the freedom to destroy uh, the child developing in her in utero and how that accomplishes exactly the opposite. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a pervasive claim. I think this is the, the predominant argument in favor of abortion. And it, it's so prominent even that the Supreme Court repeated this very idea in its decision in, in Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992, essentially upholding that we can't overturn Roe, at least in part because women have come to rely on abortion. Women can't participate in the, the social or economic life of our nation unless they have abortion as part of helping them order their reproductive lives. And this is a, a really damaging notion for women for a number of reasons, not least of which is that abortion actually harms women. But the idea of abortion harms women too, right? The notion that there's something dysfunctional or disordered about the female body, about pregnancy, about you know the female mode of reproduction, this takes the male body as the norm and as the ideal and treats women as though there's something wrong with them or as though to kind of participate in a man's world, women have to just get rid of whatever the consequences might be of sex and, and act as though they were never pregnant in order to be able to kind of compete or be on equal footing with men. We're told that abortion is first and foremost a matter of female autonomy, that it is a benefit to her. But you go into detail about the cost and the tremendous message it sends to a woman to suggest that she must fight against, she must reject her own offspring in order to pursue her own interests. And the, the tremendous toll that takes certainly on her, but for the broader culture, the, the father, the broader family and so on. Um, Alexander and I worked hard to try to make this a very clear, compassionate and persuasive compiling of all of the evidence, all of the arguments. We wanted to show that there's a better way of understanding what women's equality should look like. Um, that what we got to the past 49 and a half years, a, a version of equality that says in order to be equal, you have to deny your most distinctively feminine attribute, the God-given blessing that you can carry a child in your own womb. That to be equal to men, you have to deny that. You have to either sterilize your body or kill your offspring. That's a false vision of equality. And a true vision of equality, it's a colleague of ours at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, Erica Bakiaki, who talks about there's an asymmetrical nature to human reproduction. And true equality takes that asymmetry seriously. Rather than trying to force women to live as if defective men, the female way of being human is equal to the male way of being human. And we can structure our laws. We can structure our marketplaces. We can structure our education system, including higher education, in ways that take both ways of being human seriously.
One of the things that you argue in the book, post-abortion, that women risk emotional and psychological damage. We're being told in the broader culture that there is no fallout. This is such a benefit. It's such a relief. It opens such a broad set of options for a woman who has chosen to reject her child in favor of her own autonomy, that there is no emotional or psychological damage. And women who dare to speak up are simply denied, first of all, being heard and that they exist. Yeah, this is a really a damaging aspect, I think, of the pro-abortion rhetoric, right? Because the argument now for abortion is we have to celebrate this. This is a social good. We don't talk about it as safe, legal, and rare anymore. We're supposed to celebrate abortion and, and act as though it's always this wonderful solution for women. But the fact is that's actually not most women's experience of abortion. We know from statistics that most women choose abortion because they feel like it's their only option. They're not choosing it because they think it's great or the perfect solution. They're choosing it because they're they're desperate, essentially, or they're not getting support from the father of the child. They're not getting support from their own family. And we know that after the fact, a lot of women do suffer, like you mentioned, from psychological after effects, whether it's guilt, regret, depression, anxiety, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, even suicide at elevated rates after having had an abortion. And these women are, are simply ignored or even attacked Uh, when they share their experiences, because we're all supposed to believe that abortion is this wonderful solution. You also write about the fact that abortion harms the family, the relationship between a mother and a father, the extended family, and so on. Does that make a difference when we're talking about the autonomy of a single woman being able to determine her own future? Yes. What many women report is that the reason they feel constrained, pressured, unable to carry the child into the world, but forced by circumstances to think that abortion is their least bad option is precisely because they don't have the support of a marital partner or an extended family uh, statistic. If you were a child um, uh, conceived inside of marriage, you have a 4% chance of dying by abortion. If you were a child conceived outside of marriage, you have a 40% chance of dying by abortion. Uh, another way of putting uh, the statistic is that of all women who seek abortion, only 14% of them are married. By contrast, 86% of women who have abortions are unmarried. Marriage is the best protector of the unborn uh, because what marriage does, it, it ensures that that man is committed to that woman before children are brought into the world. Uh, anytime you're contemplating an abortion, a child has already been brought into the world. The only question is, will that child be able to exit the womb and you know, enter the, the, the visible world to the naked eye? Marriage is the best protector of unborn children. It's also an institution that really helps allow mothers to care for their children and to bring them into the next stage of their lives. Coming up. There are two patients involved in every abortion. There are two human beings there, the mother and the child, and abortion targets one of those human beings for death. More with Ryan Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with The Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Georgine Rice. As we consider the cultural landscape on the devaluation of innocent human life in the womb, I recognize it can be daunting. Elite media is against life. 
Hollywood media, and the movie industry are against the cause of life. The unions and political apparatus of the left are against the cause of life. But let me remind you, five years ago, if I had told you that in 2023, Roe would no longer be the binding precedent on this issue, you most likely would not have believed me. Let's return to my conversation with Ryan Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis about their book, Tearing Us Apart. There's been a lot of discussions about what the Constitution actually says about abortion. Those who support abortion rights throughout pregnancy believe that there is a constitutional right because the Supreme Court said there was. Others who have recognized that there is no constitutional right rejoice that they finally got it right. Your thoughts on the decision that was made by the U.S. Supreme Court? There's nothing in the Constitution that even remotely could be construed uh, to protect a right to choose to kill an unborn human being. Uh, whether it was the original Roe v. Wade decision that said it was a privacy right, or then the Casey decision that said it was a liberty right, or then the hope for academic argument was that it was an equality right. This was something that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had embraced later in life and many academic defenders of abortion. So, well, you know, whether it's privacy, liberty, or equality, all of those rights, those are real rights, but they all have limits. And neither privacy nor liberty nor equality justifies killing another innocent human being. And so our Constitution, uh, rightly understood, has never protected a right to abortion. The Supreme Court simply got it wrong 49 and a half years ago. It repeated the error 30 years ago in Planned Parenthood v. Casey. And all the court has done in the Dobbs case is admitted its mistake and overturned Roe and Casey. Now, there are some pro-life scholars, and, and Alexander and I are sympathetic to this argument, although we think you know more research needs to be done, and the current Supreme Court isn't there yet, that argue that rightly understood the 14th Amendment to our Constitution, which prohibits any state from denying equal protection of the law to any person, that that should include the unborn human person. Uh, I don't think the current court, uh, the votes simply aren't there, which means that in the meantime, we need to pass laws at the state level protecting unborn babies. We need to pass laws at the federal level. Uh, we need to work to either have a constitutional amendment or to have justices that interpret the 14th Amendment that way, because ultimately we can't be half abortion, half pro-life in the same way that we couldn't be half slave, half free. As Lincoln taught us, the house divided cannot stand. What has abortion on demand done to the medical profession in terms of perverting its primary purpose and reducing the unborn to something less than worthy of the kind of medical attention that one presumed the oath required preserving? Yeah, so the, the problem, of course, with abortion is that it's not actually a healthcare procedure, right? It's a procedure that kills an innocent human being. There are two patients involved in every abortion. There are two human beings there, the mother and the child, and abortion targets one of those human beings for death. And it's not medically necessary. It doesn't cure any disease. It doesn't solve any ailment. It doesn't treat any problem. It just kills a child because a woman doesn't want to be pregnant for whatever reason. And so at that point, once you have a, a country where this is accepted as a, a form of health care and where some number of doctors are willing to perform this procedure, even though it's not medically necessary, that perverts our understanding of what healthcare is, and it perverts our understanding of what a doctor is. So now, instead of being a, a medical professional who's using his talents to cure and heal, a, a doctor becomes a, essentially a technician for hire who's using the tools of his trade to, to kill. And so that has very unfortunate downstream effect on all of our medical fields. Can you talk a little bit about how some of these medical professionals who have had an about face after having performed abortion for a long period of time and what the mitigating circumstance is that reverses their perspective on what they have known all along? 
Sure. I mean, perhaps the most famous example is Bernard uh, Nathan, yes. who is you know, one of the founders of NARAL Pro-Choice, you know, one of the largest abortion activist groups uh, and abortion providers in the country. And I think Bernard Nathanson himself performed several hundred, if not thousands, abortions in clinics that he oversaw. I don't remember right now what the exact catalyst was in his case. I know one of the other stories that we tell in the book was an abortionist whose daughter tragically yes. died. And then when he returned to work, and he's in the middle of performing an abortion, you know, he kind of breaks down. He realizes, I just killed someone else's child. And this was after having spent a couple months off mourning the loss of his own child. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what can pro-life advocates do to make it easier for women to choose life? What can we do to help support women? For some of us, it's going to be prayer. Actually, for all of us, it should be prayer. <laughs> for many of us, it's going to be a financial contribution. Look up your local pregnancy resource center and start making a monthly contribution perhaps volunteering your time at that local pregnancy resource center. Perhaps it's becoming a foster parent. Perhaps it's becoming an adoptive parent. Perhaps it's writing that letter to the editor, writing the op-ed for your local newspaper. Perhaps it's lobbying your state representative. So there really is an infinite number of things readers could do after finishing the book. And a lot really just depends on what their station in life and their vocation in life is. There's more of my conversation with Ryan and Alexandra. Go to ChristianOutlook.com for more. Coming up, we'll look at the plight of the Uyghurs in China under the Chinese Communist Party. The camps today are concentration camps that shares all the hallmarks of the camps that you and I studied in the history books. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment, stay with us. Celebrating our 25th anniversary, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy invites you to learn from one of our beloved teachers, Dr. Gordon Lloyd, in a four-part webinar series titled The Roots of Political Economy, Capitalism versus Socialism. This free video series teaches foundational principles of free markets, as well as the philosophers behind socialism. Find out more at go.pepperdine.edu slash capitalism. That's go.pepperdine.edu slash capitalism. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. Never again. That line will be familiar to many of you. It became ubiquitous as the world learned about the horrors of the Holocaust and the atrocities of the concentration camps in World War II. We, the U.S., and the rest of the world boldly declared never again. We were not going to let what happened to the Jews happen ever again to anyone else. Nuri Turkel is a courageous voice exposing what's really happening in China under Xi Jinping. He's the author of No Escape, the true story of China's genocide of the Uyghurs. Nuri was a guest of Don Crow, my colleague on Weva in the nation's capital. You and I were talking, Nuri, about the fact that although certainly and well justified, the genocide against the Uyghurs is front and center, as it should be right now, for a lot of reasons that we've discussed and we'll touch on further. Uh, nonetheless, China has, the Republic of China has a horrible history in terms of any religious faith or uh, belief system at all. Can you talk about that and why that's so? Thank you for asking me that important question. Um, throughout the history, the Chinese uh, Communist Party, through official statements, speeches, uh, propaganda materials projected something or telegraphed something very clear, which is they, are, uh, they have been in constant battle against Western influence. That Western influence is essentially a religion. Uh, specifically, they call it foreign religion, uh, Christianity and Islam to be exact. 
And they have been doing what they have been doing is to treat uh, Western religion and foreign religion specifically, and some something like uh, thought virus, uh, infectious disease mm. uh, that they need to clear out before it spreads to vital organs of the state. That's the exact quote that they use. So religious belief, spirituality to them is a mental illness or infectious disease. In order to uh, uh, address that concern, China has been so unfriendly, uh, to to mildly put, and hostile, as uh, former uh, Ambassador Large Sam Brownback often said. Uh, So they have been systematically uh, engaging in something called sinicization of religion in China which essentially means to replace or change the text in Bible and, and Quran. Uh, when, as you know, Adan, when you change a text, that's not religion. Right. Specifically, that language changing conducted, uh, taken, uh, undertaken by a communist uh, regime. So today in Chinese societies, uh, in the places of worship, they're removing the cross from the top of church and replacing Jesus' picture with Xi Jinping's portrait. And also, uh, uh, same thing in the Uyghur uh, mosques. What they're doing is to making, forcing uh, the uh, religious leaders uh, to go through something, re-education, to make them forcibly patriotic. For, for example, the Catholics have to register with a, a government entity called Catholic Patriotic Association in breach of its agreement with the Vatican, that the Vatican is supposed to be allowed to appoint bishops. And not as if that is not only that is not enough. They also rounding up religious leaders. Uh, today, Chinese prisons under underground church leaders uh, filled with uh, religious uh, figures, uh, uh, individuals who even uh, one point promoted by the state. And now this whole religious belief uh, in China has been changed into something. One of the individuals that I interviewed in the book uh, for the book. Uh, told me that she had to recite something every day. Who is your new God uh, as part of the rituals in mourning? And the answer has to be Xi Jinping. Uh, There has to be uh, something that those people, religious leaders, pious individuals, devout religious practitioners have to recite back to the, the individuals who have been brainwashing, indoctrinating them. How effective has it been uh, so far as you can tell? Because some of those folks... No doubt Uyghurs and Christians and others go into these camps never to come out. But uh, for those who've survived it, what kind of uh, what kind of effectiveness does that reflect that they actually convince them otherwise? You and I know that uh, once you uh, believe in God, it's impossible uh, to change your mind. You know, that's, that's people, how people live their lives, guided by uh, religious belief. Uh, and it can break your spirit if you make if you yeah. go through daily hourly that you have no God by Xi Jinping. It can break your spirit and yeah. it creates serious mental health issues. Mm-hmm. And I, I I can't imagine somebody who can come out as a normal people in the camp in the Uyghur camps. Uh, they have been they have not been releasing individuals, even those who have been released, as the Chinese claimed, have been transferred into. Uh, uh, something called uh, labor camps to make um, consumer products that has been uh, polluting the global supply chain. So uh, the, the the individuals have not been able to release. So that's the sad reality. So so this program, the effectiveness does not exist, but it effectively, as they promised, they're breaking the Uyghur spirit. To what extent uh, does your own 
experience include those uh, those years? Were you in the camps yourself or your family members? My uh, my early childhood, as I noted in the book, right? Uh, I spent several months of my life in this world in the re-education camp. I was a infant child. But my mother went through re-education means that you have to chant a patriotic slogan, condemn your God, condemn even your relatives. In my mother's case, you had to condemn wow. her dad as a counter-revolutionary. Wow. Uh, so, so that's the kind of a daily rit- uh, ritual. But the camp that I spent my early uh, days are different than the camp that we're talking about. The camps today are concentration camps that shares the whole, all the hallmarks of the camps that you and I studied in the history books, believing that never come back. But the Chinese brought back the concentration camps in a much sophisticated level. It is surveilled by most sophisticated cameras made specifically by this company called Hikvision that uh, already installed 400 million cameras in China, but now exporting the same surveillance all around the world. In the United States, this might be relevant to your uh, uh, listeners, in our hospitals, our schools, and, and, and prison prisons, in one instance, a military base, we're using the same camera that the Chinese used to surveil every moment, every aspect of the detainees in the concentration camp. And also, this has been so brutal, they're targeting ethno-religious groups, they're, they're religious practitioners. And and also make the matters worth, these people never be, have a day in court. No one will tell them what they, why they were there and when they will be out. Even if they manage to be out, no compensation, no apology, no efforts to reintroduce them to the societies are offered. So this is exactly the type of uh, camp system that specifically we've seen in the history in Europe, specifically during the Second World War. Coming up, a few more minutes with Nuri Turkel on what's really happening in China. They're leading in artificial intelligence. They're leading in quantum computing. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. What's happening to the Uyghurs in China is absolutely chilling. But to understand concentration camps in the 21st century... We need a clear understanding of the motives and the aspirations of Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party. Let's return for a few more minutes with Nuri Turkel and Don Crow. Nuri once again is the author of No Escape, the true story of China's genocide of the Uyghurs. The Chinese Communist Party has a global goal, really to dominate the whole world tech-wise. Is that right? China has um, announced its uh, national security strategy in 2014. It made something very clear. One... They will push back anything that hampers growth, economic growth. And then two, they need to project uh, uh, global tech dominance through investment, through core economic coercion, diplomatic coercion. As we speak, more than 80 countries around the world have uh, either adopted or imported Chinese surveillance techniques. So those of us who wanted to live in the, in the free world continue to, uh, to, be, to be ourselves as a free people without worrying about somebody surveilling us, should be really concerned. Huawei, the company that has been in the news a lot, have uh, uh, entered into a cloud storage contract with over 140 countries. We have about 190 countries at the United Nations. Think about Let this thing sink in. And also, uh, this company, Hikvision, being the largest camera maker, the market has sat- saturated. 
So if you walk around the streets of London, the cameras installed in the London is their cameras. They have a slogan. It says, low-ranking tech firms makes the equipment. Mid-ranking firms develop technology. High-ranking uh, firms sets the standard. In addition to exporting, they also setting the standards for technical equipments. They're leading in artificial intelligence. They're leading in quantum computing, by uh, synthetic biology. So it is it is absolutely necessary that our previous administration and current administration have been laser-focused to push back against Chinese digital colonialism. How can we push back effectively, and what should the American people know, and then what should they be saying to their representatives in the House and Senate, the president, in terms of enough already, uh, and uh, begin to push back and countermand this uh, effect, this uh, intent of uh, China to really take America over as well as every other country, right? Yes, three things as average uh, uh, citizens or ordinary citizens of this beautiful country could do. One, we should continue to uh, make this part of our uh, political campaign. When we're voting for a, camp, uh, a political candidate, we need to ask them, what are you going to do with the abuses taking place in China? What are you going to do to protect our sovereignty, our freedom? And also, this is something that American people already spoken out. Pew Research shows that 70% of American public wants to have a human rights-centric policy with respect to China. Number two, as a consumers, we should not ignore our ability to influence business decision-making. Thank you for joining us for The Christian Outlook. For the complete interview with Nuri Turkel and Don Crow, go to ChristianOutlook.com. If you enjoyed the program, be sure to mention it to a friend and send them to ChristianOutlook.com. Encourage them to sign up for our podcast. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin and producers David Pushan, Mike Cook, and James Blend, I'm Georgine Rice. Join us again next time for The Christian Outlook. Surgeons keep our hearts beating. They do the amazing, help save lives, and so can you. Your CSL Plasma donation can help create 24 critical life-saving medicines that can give Grandpa the chance for his heart to swell when he meets his new grandson or give a bride the chance for her heart to skip a beat on her wedding day. Every plasma donation helps more than you know. Do the amazing. Help save lives. Donate today at your local CSL Plasma Center and be rewarded for your generosity.